You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Uh, it's great to have you today. We have a wonderful show and um, those of us at Westbridge are really happy to present this show to you today. Um, we're going to be talking about harm reduction versus abstinence in the treatment of um, substance use disorders. And our guest today is Dr. Tom Irwin, who is a Ph.D. and Program Director of the Fernside Program at McLean Hospital. Uh, Dr. Irwin received his training at the University of Houston in the area of clinical psychology, where he developed an expertise in the field of substance abuse treatment. Since completing his doctorate, Dr. Irwin has been on the faculty at Mount Sinai School of Medicine and Columbia University, where he participated in federally funded research activities focused on behavioral and psychopharmacological treatment for substance use disorders. Prior to his position as the program director at the McLean Center at Fernside, Dr. Irwin was an assistant professor at clinical psychology and psychiatry at the Westchester Division of the Wheel Medical College of Cornell University and served as the program director of the Substance Abuse Treatment Services at Payne Whitney, Westchester. Welcome to One Hour at a Time, Dr. Irwin. And um, we were our show today is on harm reduction versus abstinence. And this has been a debate that has been ongoing in uh, the profession of substance abuse treatment, I guess, since the advent of methadone. And um, maybe you could just explain to the, our audience a little bit about the debate and what is harm reduction and what is abstinence. I'd be happy to. And uh, and uh, thank you for uh, having me today. Uh, it's good to be. It's good to be here. Um, yeah, I think. Um, there are a number of, of kind of critical uh, um, areas where this debate has really kind of come to the forefront, um, and methadone is certainly one. Um, and there were also uh, moderation management uh, studies that were conducted in the 70s uh, that were um, scrutinized heavily uh, and um, really brought this debate out, I think, in, into the public, uh, certainly within the recovery community. Um, and I think, you know, over the course of uh, the past several decades, uh, harm reduction has, has been, uh, I think, more visible, certainly, and I think the principles of, of harm reduction have, have been, you know, more clarified. Um, uh, but I think... You know, a quick summary of, of what harm reduction is, is just minimizing the, the risk associated with the use of substances, um, whether that means, you know, a reduction in the use of the substance itself or uh, oftentimes it's, a re, you know, trying to work with the uh, patient or client to reduce the, the consequences associated with use, um, regardless of, of the severity of, of use. Um, I, I think one, one important point uh, to note is that, that harm reduction doesn't necessarily minimize or ignore uh, the, uh, the realities of drug use and the harm uh, that, it, uh, that, that drug use can cause, drug or alcohol use can cause, uh, and that there are very real dangers associated with uh, um, illicit drug use. 
use and, and alcohol use. Um, but I think it, it is, in some ways, an attempt to um, uh, work with the client uh, with uh, the, you know, whatever the client's willingness is and motivation uh, and reasons for uh, reducing uh, uh, quantity and frequency or the consequences. And um, how would you define abstinence? Because I think that's equally loaded as harm reduction. I, I think you're right. Uh, and increasingly, I think, with uh, medications that have, have been shown to you know, a greater or lesser extent uh, to uh, either, uh, particularly with opiate use, uh, you know, methadone was you know, uh, the first uh, opiate replacement therapy. Uh, and there are newer uh, alternatives to that. Um, in addition, um, I think the uh, treatment field as a whole is looking for uh, pharmacologically based uh, um, treatment uh, uh, to help either uh, someone in you know early recovery. Um, so that's part of it. Also. There are a good number of people, um, and we could debate whether this is a good or a bad thing, but, um, you know, some people choose to be absent with one substance, but, but possibly not with, uh, with all uh, drugs or alcohol. Um, and although there, you know, there is a very real possibility of what we call cross-tolerance, where uh, if, if, if someone becomes dependent on one substance, the likelihood of them uh, uh, having problems with other substances, um, that, that, that's actually uh, also debated. Uh, but um, absence is, is, is uh, not as clear, I think, as it used to be, um, say, you know, 20 years ago. Um, so uh, well, I think one point that is probably important to start out with is that, um, the, you know, the, the absence versus the harm reduction debate is somewhat of a, of a false dichotomy. And, uh, you know, there are tools, uh, I think, uh, that can be used under both models. They're not independent models. They can be used together uh, to help uh, someone who is in treatment. Right, and they're not mutually exclusive, which I think is the way a lot of the treatment profession sees them. Exactly, exactly. Um, I, I know from from my experience in, in the profession, uh, early on, um, like in the late 70s and early 80s, abstinence was the, the key or the goal for everyone's recovery, and everyone would enter treatment, um, and it was just assumed that abstinence was the goal for the recovery. I don't think it was as client-centered then as maybe treatment is today. And and I think that in the late, I don't exactly know the dates, but sometime in the late 70s, I believe, the, the, there was um, extensive research done on people going back to controlled drinking. Correct. Which the Sobels, I believe, were the right. folks that did that. And I think within... The um, treatment profession, which at that time was comprised 
predominantly of people who were in recovery themselves who had gone on and entered the the profession, this was like um, almost heresy that that you would take people who had finally gotten sober and then, um, you know, experiment with, with social drinking. And I think from my perspective, that's really how harm reduction got tainted. I, I don't know whether you go back that far in this profession or not, but um, that seems to be what I remember. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the, that's when this issue really exploded. Uh, and um, I, I think, uh, again, I, I, I think there, there seems to be a little less of a reaction to um, uh, working with people on moderation. That's a whole piece of, of harm reduction. They're, they're not equivalent. Uh, um, you know, they're not synonymous. Uh, they're very independent. Uh, I would say that... that um, Moderation management is one form of, of harm reduction, but I would also say that absence is a form of harm reduction as well. Um, it doesn't exclude abstinence. Um, um, but, the, but that's where the debate really, uh, I think, took hold. And uh, the Sobels were the center, uh, Mark and Linda Sobel, um, who eventually chose to work in Canada um, and do their the research there uh, because of the pressures uh, they were experiencing uh, in, in the U.S. Um, and, you know, I think what's important to consider here is that, that one type of treatment doesn't fit everyone. Um, you know, and, and kind of a, an example... You know, if you if you're working with somebody who is young, uh, maybe 18 to 22, who's first experimenting with drinking, but is um, perhaps misusing alcohol uh, once in a great while, um, working with them on a kind of an abstinence-based treatment program is very unlikely to be successful, and I think very few people would would doubt that. A better approach would probably be some education uh, about drinking, um, and really, in that case, you know, working with them more of an, a, on a prevention uh, level rather than a treatment level. Um, and you could compare that to someone who's been dependent on a substance for you know decades, uh, who has you know problems associated across many domains in their life because of their substance use. Um, so you really do have to match uh, the treatment to the uh, to the case coming in. And I think you bring up a really good point because developmentally, that's what we would do for any other chronic illness as well, whether it be diabetes or asthma or um, you know multiple sclerosis or whatever someone acquired uh, during that stage of their life. It's it's really based on. Um, prevention and um, assessment and and really monitoring people to see how that illness is going to progress. Very good point. Um, and it, it, a very good you know, comparison would would be diabetes, um, which can at first be controlled with diet. Um, heart disease is another. Uh, medications are fine uh, and and. 
if you know compliance is high, uh, additional intervention may never be needed. I think I think that you know to we we started initially talking about the debate, and I think it's really important for our listeners to know that this debate is ongoing and can be, get quite intense at times, depending on who's in the room and whose perspective people are, are looking at. And I think for for treatment providers, they already know what the debate is. For, for individuals and families who are listening, it's important for them to understand that, um, as you said earlier, that, that treatment is a continuum and harm reduction is also a continuum, as it is with any other major illness. And that um, being able to talk to families or practitioners about harm reduction is important for individuals and families. And we'll be right back after this um, commercial to talk more with Dr. Irvin, Irwin, I'm sorry, about um, harm reduction versus abstinence. And if you have any questions or comments, please call in. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Um, welcome back, everyone. We're talking today with Dr. Tom Irwin, who is the program director at the McLean Center at Fernside, and we're talking with Dr. Irwin about harm reduction versus abstinence. And I think what we kind of came to at the end of our first segment was that abstinence is a form of harm reduction, and that when people are thinking about 
recovery and the end goal of treatment for people with substance use disorders. It's really important to look at the whole person and to look at the person's goals and and be able to individualize treatment with from a menu of different treatment interventions that are available um, today. And I would just like, um, Dr. Irwin, if you could just talk um, and, and just kind of restate for our audience, what are the different parts of the continuum for uh, the treatment of substance use disorders? Sure. I'd be happy to. Um, well, it, it, uh, the, the highest level of care certainly uh, is a, a detox situation, which tends to be fairly medically intensive, uh, particularly if there are other medical uh, issues involved or other psychiatric issues uh, that uh, the, the patient presents with, the client presents with. Um, and you know the, the primary goal uh, in in that scenario is to uh, uh, get the person safe and stable, um, and that you know that may include a, a complete detox from all substances. It it may, uh, for instance, with benzodiazepines, uh, uh, detox is usually the beginning of um, you know, changing the level, reducing the level of benzos, uh, benzodiazepines over time, uh, because it is a fairly long process uh, that can take uh, sometimes uh, weeks, uh, if not uh, a month, to complete. Um, oftentimes, that is uh, continued in in what I would call the second level of care, which uh, is um, uh, an inpatient facility. Uh, or uh, perhaps a, um, uh, a residential treatment program. Uh, there's great variance in the intensity of uh, both inpatient and residential programs. I think some residential programs in some ways have even a higher level of care. Uh, uh, so it's, you know, it's a confusing landscape out there for the consumer, certainly, which we can, we can talk about later. But... Um, and uh, you know, traditionally, uh, treatment um, has been thought of as rehab, and we see it in the media all the time. You know, so and so enters rehab, um, and uh, but but it's important to, to recognize that that's that's really only one uh, you know one level of care. Um, outpatient services are are often underutilized, and uh, there's, uh, you know, a large number of outpatient programs. Uh, they certainly outnumber um, higher levels of care, and oftentimes that's a good place to start uh, for people who have uh, problems. Well, I think the other um, side of the continuum of care is that so, so often treatment is focused on people who are like in the action stage, who are really ready mm-hmm. to change and who have made a decision to be abstinent. And we we have very few treatment interventions for people who are active in their disease, um, who are still using alcohol, still using drugs, and who are, who are having the negative um, effects of their life as a result of that alcohol and drug use. And so often they're told, well, come back when you're ready to get sober. Right. And there's no other illness that when somebody when somebody has chest pain, we don't say, well, come back when your chest pain goes away. 
we've developed interventions and we've under we've really understood what it means to have acute chest pain and and how we treat acute chest pain but we don't really unless it's detoxification we don't really treat the the person who's acutely ill and their addiction a very good point um, yeah i think if i remember the statistic um Approximately 85% of public dollars, uh, so you know Medicaid, Medicare dollars for addiction treatment goes for detox. Um, so that gives you some perspective as to where where federal dollars are being spent uh, for addiction treatment. Um, uh, but um, and and for many of those people, they're they're not necessarily motivated to to change um, you know they're there to to get healthy again or to get on their feet or to get to the point where they can drink or use again well unfortunately that's absolutely true um, and there isn't enough resources going towards trying to increase motivation and in the past 20 years there's been a lot of great research out there to suggest that um, Providers have uh, uh, the ability to to really help someone get motivated and also, you know, uh, develop uh, um, some hope and confidence in the ability to stay um, consistent with with their goals. Um, and they're underutilized generally in the treatment field, um, as you said. Oftentimes, the message to uh, the patient is. You know, let me know when you're motivated, and, and you know, then we have something to work on, um, which is very, very unfortunate. Um, uh, if if uh, if you uh, are trying to help somebody um, get motivated, you know, the best thing to do is to not turn them away, but to keep them engaged, uh, right. at least in a discussion about. Um, you know the, the consequences that they're experiencing, uh, and that process in itself can, um, you know, help people get into the action uh, uh, stage of change. And I think um, this really ties into how complex the disease of addiction is, and how complex substance use disorders are. That um, there is no quick fix, there is no magic bullet, and. You know, we, we tend to look at the intoxicated individual and um, say, like, okay, detox, that's the answer. But um, for many people, it's just the beginning, of this, and it's not really addiction treatment per se. It's a medical intervention that's done to help people withdraw, but it's not traditional addiction treatment. Right. right. And I think people get confused about that. I, uh, very much so. Um, it is a very complex disorder, uh, addiction, and uh, there's so many factors that play into that complexity. Uh, um, you know, in my experience as a treatment provider, you know, I've worked with um, I've worked with very young individuals who uh, may have very heavy genetic predispositions to drinking uh, that were raised in, in environments where drinking uh, 
was very common, and uh, the expectation was that you know that they would participate in that. So there's a lot of influence, both you know biologic, biological influence and social uh, familial influence, um, uh, you know, for the development of a problem. And at the same time, I've I've worked with uh, individuals who you know may be uh, late set, uh, uh, late onset uh, uh, alcoholics um, or or alcohol dependent individuals who you know may have been very successful uh, and uh, have been social drinkers for most of their lives, but uh, in their 60s or even 70s uh, start. You know, drinking in a very problematic way that that starts to impact their lives in very very negative ways. Uh, so onset in itself is uh, is very complicated, um, and I think you know again that's part of the assessment that that uh, programs should be doing uh, to evaluate you know where where do you step in with this individual to um, help them the best you know the best way. And those are complicated questions. And I think that part of the um, the challenges in treating people with substance use disorders is, and it kind of goes back to the debate, is the the lack of understanding among um, the medical profession about what addiction is, what what happens to people who who become addicted to one substance. I mean, the over prescribing of benzodiazepines, the overprescribing of pain medication. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that that's a huge challenge for individuals and families because they think, well, a doctor's prescribed this. I told them that I had an alcohol addiction or that my son has, you know, been smoking pot. Um, it doesn't come out of his room for days at a time. And so we, they give them, uh, you know, something to, to counteract that. And I think that it's very confusing because the brain is such a complex organ. Very true, very true. And in in families, I, I you know I'm not sure how the media um, uh, impacts this, but but it, I think you mentioned it earlier. Uh, addiction seems to be viewed as uh, as a dichotomy, um, and even the terms alcoholic. An addict um, uh, kind of perpetuate that in some ways. Not that not that I'm saying that those are inappropriate terms, um, you know, for the individual in recovery. But um, it it does tend to create a dichotomy of either you are or you're not. um, You know, if you look at the spectrum of of the disorder. you have a, a very large percentage of population who um, are either abstainers or drink mildly, um, and you have um, a great number who you know misuse alcohol I, and, and not even abuse alcohol, but but mis, misuse alcohol on occasion. And then you get into um, those who abuse alcohol and those who um, are dependent on alcohol or, or drugs. All levels of problems. Um, it, it's really the tip of the iceberg that actually gets into uh, treatment, um, and that's unfortunate because those who who have problems that aren't as bad could also benefit uh, from treatment. 
but it's it has uh, added to the perception of this as a dichotomy. And we'll be right back um, to talk more about harm reduction versus abstinence with Dr. Tom Irwin, the program director of the Methylene Center at Fernside. Uh, call in with any questions or comments you have about uh, harm reduction versus abstinence, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody. We were, we were talking to Dr. Tom Irwin, the program director at the McLean Center at Fernside. And before we went to this last break, Dr. Irwin was talking to us about the, com- the complexity of addiction, and it made me uh, kind of think about the whole idea of we know that addiction is a brain disease, and we know that this disease um, can be acted out through various behaviors. Traditionally, we think of addiction in terms of alcohol or drugs, Um, or medications that are prescribed. But there are other addictions that we know and we're learning more about. There's overeating, there's gambling, there's um, sex addictions, there's uh, shopping addictions, there's what we call process addictions. And I know that this debate between harm reduction and abstinence is, to me, kind of a smoke and mirrors because I know people who have been abstinent from alcohol and drugs for a number of years but every weekend they're out on the golf course gambling on every hole. And they're strong proponents of abstinence, but yet what they're doing every week to me seems the same as what they're doing to their brain by gambling on a golf hole is similar to what they'd be doing if they were taking a drink or smoking pot. And I'm just wondering what you think about that statement, Dr. Owen. Sure. Well, um it's an interesting question, I, I, um, and I, I have to admit that I, I know more about some, you know, as you said, process addictions than others. Uh, one thing that, that is uh, 
adds to the complexity here is for, for a lot of behaviors, um, what's typically considered abstinence is just not um, possible or even healthy uh, for overeaters or or over you know controlled eaters. Um, you know the goal generally is to to have proper nutri- nutrition um, that's that's healthy. Um, so you know that, that's a absence is generally defined as as you know meeting your goals for uh, nutrition. Um, similarly, you can look at, at sexual behavior um, for hypersexuality, sexual compulsivity, or sex addiction. Um, generally, a, you know a healthy uh, lifestyle includes um, um, you know sex uh, in uh, um, and this is a very value-loaded uh, area, certainly, but, um, uh, you know, healthy people have healthy sexual lives. Um, and, you know, defining that is a very, um, it's, it's a loaded topic, and um, clients uh, and or patients um, may have very different values, um, and, and, uh I think to some extent the, the provider has to respect uh, the values, yet also challenge when the values seem very, very unreasonable. So abstinence is, is a very difficult thing. Um, also related to this topic, I think, is, is um, the fact that there's really not such a thing as an addicted, or pardon me, an addictive personality. Uh, it is one thing that's been, you know, people have been searching for for decades now. However, uh, there are some characteristics that tend to uh, be common across a lot of different problem behaviors, and, and, and one of those is, is general risk taking uh, tends to be higher uh, in those who drink and, and use drugs. And I, I would say that. Uh, there's there's certainly association with um, other types of, of um, behaviors as well. Uh, those who who um, have uh, kind of extreme levels of, of any behavior are probably putting themselves at, at risk at some point, uh, some way or another. And um, uh, you know they may not be wearing seatbelts, for instance, as often as. Um, uh, people who who just um, are either abstain or use socially uh, for uh, alcohol or other substances. Um, but I would also agree with you in, in terms of my clinical experience. I, I've seen that those who who uh, who abstain uh, and are very successful in their recovery from alcohol and or drugs. Um, Will often step into other behaviors that uh, can tend to consume them. Um, I don't have a lot of data to support that, but that that has been my clinical experience. Right. I, I remember one gentleman that I worked with who, um, you know, went through a 28-day rehab, did really well, and became a marathon runner, and became so obsessive about running he was running on a fractured tibia and didn't even feel the pain. Yes. Um, That's an extreme. Um, 
exercise can be a, a, a form of um, one thing that the body produces is um, what might be called um, endogenous opiates uh, uh, that you know rather than uh, you know using an opiate um, your body will create those endorphins um, and chemically they're very similar to uh, other other opiates uh, that you can consume. So uh, there is certainly the potential to uh, overindulge, uh, to you know, to get a similar kind of an effect. With the complexity of addiction as it is, um, over the last, I think, 20 years, there have been different levels of care that have been described through the American Society of Addiction Medicine. There's also been different screening tools, such as the Addiction Severity Index, and... Uh, the SASE and the audit and a number of other things that people can use to, for assessment and screening. And um, the levels of care are really important because not one size fits all. And maybe if we could just spend a little bit of time defining what those levels of care are. You talked earlier about outpatient versus like a medically managed detox. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's other things in between that are sometimes underutilized or not even offered in some areas. But... I think it'd be good to kind of define that for folks in, in, in the perfect world, what should be available. Yeah, ideally, um, you have systems uh, that that offer um, a full continuum, which is actually a very rare thing to see. Uh, uh, most uh, programs will offer... Um, components, uh, but a full continuum of care um, from uh, uh, from detox all the way down to you know individual therapy. Eventually, um, uh, is a it's, it's a fairly rare thing to see. Um, so, you know, in terms of of uh, treatment, it's usually a process of transferring an individual. Uh, from one level of care uh, in in you know one system into another level of care into a different system, uh, which is which is challenging, um, and and also you know where people enter the system I think is critical too uh, because you know for some you know stepping into an outpatient program makes absolute sense and is the best place to get started. Um, and if if uh, if they don't do well uh, with that structure, maybe an increase in structure, um, you know, would be uh, the appropriate thing to do. So being able to step people up as well as step people down uh, during the course of a, of a full treatment uh, process uh, is really critical. Um, and, and as I said, there's very few programs that that have the capacity to do that, um, you know, within their own system. Well, and I think that if we use the analogy to, um, let's say, heart disease, where um, someone is identified as having, um, you know, chest pain, they don't automatically go into the highest level of care um, upon learning of the diagnosis. Oftentimes, they're treated in an outpatient capacity. Oftentimes, 
angiograms and things are done on an outpatient capacity or overnight so that when we think about addiction, um, sometimes the best place to start is with a lower level of care where you can engage someone in treatment and you can get to know them, you can do the assessments, and the pressure isn't on the person to, all right, you know, change change your lifestyle, change your friends, um, you know, change everything about you, and then you can go out and be in recovery. Right, right. Because it's, it's a huge commitment to enter into recovery. It's, it's a wonderful, recovery is a wonderful thing, but it takes a lot of time, effort, and energy that I don't think people realize until they're in the throes of it. And I don't often think treatment providers realize what it takes either. True. And I, and I would also add to that, that that often people who engage in treatment aren't fully aware of the amount of effort that it will take on their part uh, to get better. Um, because to some extent, uh, uh, the perception is that, that, that rehab is a, is a medical, um, you know, a, a medical procedure. Um, you, the, the, the consumer has the sense that, that well, they're going to go here to, you know, to, get well again, and without the, the understanding that it actually takes a huge amount of commitment and, and work on their part to be successful, um, as is true for, you know, a lot of physical uh, illnesses as well as psychiatric. Right. Um, any kind of behavioral um, uh, uh, treatment plans generally have um, that as a component. Well, and I think when, when we look at the debate about harm reduction versus abstinence, um, it's it's almost it's almost really hard to even think of anybody being in in total abstinence from everything that could possibly trigger the part of the brain that's affected by addiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you take that to the extreme. On the other hand, um, you also we also don't want, as I know, you know. There's nursing homes that that have cocktail hours, and they're giving people, you know, benzodiazepines, antidepressants, and then they're giving them cocktails at four, four or five o'clock. So you don't want that end as a treatment either. Or in the old days, when the you'd graduate from a, a therapeutic community, and on your graduation you go out to a bar and drink. We don't want that either. So right. um, we'll come back with our last segment with Dr. Irwin. If you have any questions or comments, please give us a call, um, and we'll be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness.